So, and then we're going to start the whole liturgical year over again. So we're talking about end times and end things and God's reign, right? And then we're going to start with, once again, in Advent, the prediction of the Messiah coming and then him, him being born, his passion, life, death, and resurrection, all the way through until we end up at this spot again. But even though we're talking about end things and last days, it's not like these readings don't have something to do with today in Akron, Ohio. Jesus said in the gospel today at the uh, gospel, if we would have continued on just a little bit more, before the end of the world, they will, they will seize you and persecute you and hand you over. They will lead you before governments and courts because of my name. And that will lead to you giving testimony. You giving testimony. We see it in our own day, the little sisters of the poor hauled before the courts to force them to pay for medical procedures and services that go against strongly held religious beliefs. Catholic beliefs are constantly under attack in social media concerning marriage laws, life issues, celibacy, male priesthood, etc., etc., etc. I'm willing to bet that most of you have been in a hostile conversation or on the edges of it on matters of faith that 20 years ago wouldn't have even raised an eyebrow. Jordan Peterson skyrocketed to fame when the government of Canada made uh, mandated speech laws. Their government decreed that when speaking to certain people by law, you must use such and so pronouns even in casual conversation or you can be legally punished. He wasn't opposed to the words per se, but that the government would impose speech on her people was a whole nother thing. Now in this particular case, a person might be inclined to say, what's the big deal? Get over it. It's polite, perhaps. It isn't that much. It makes some people happy. Why get your socks in a bunch over it? But this man, Jordan Peterson, had a philosophy of life, well thought out and coherent. And he could see where such government power could lead if left unchecked and unbalanced. So he spoke out and risked reprisal and he got it swiftly and brutally. But he lived as a free man under the attempted restraints of others. If he were willing to lie down and accept this restraint of freedom of speech, what might be the next inch that the government would mandate? And what after that? It's a scary prospect, and thank goodness someone was brave enough to risk freedom. In his book, The Benedict Option, Rod Dreher talks about how important it is to live truth even when, and especially when, there is persecution against it. To go along and live a lie, even when thinking it is no big deal, is to collaborate with evil and to compromise our, few, our full humanity. He tells the theoretical story about a grocer under communist rule. He is asked to put a sign in his windows that say, workers unite by the communists. And he, th he could have said, I can go along. After all, there's nothing wrong with workers uniting on the surface of it. It sounds good, right? But deep down, he knew that it meant more than those apparent words. And on some level, he would be living a lie. 
So what if he refused to put the sign up, made some attempt to live truthfully? There would be a mighty price to pay. Under communist rule, he could lose his job. He could lose his place in society. His children might not be able to go to college. He would be bullied. All of which means, however, that he was doing something powerful in this simple act. To quote the book, he has said that the emperor is naked and something extremely dangerous has happened. By his action, he has enabled everyone to peer behind the curtain. He has shown everyone that it is possible to live within the truth. He bears witness to the truth of his convictions by being willing to suffer for them. He has become a threat to the system, but he has preserved his humanity. In order for these various people to be able to take such an action, however, they need a philosophy of life. That may sound con contrary to the gospel mandate today when Jesus said, do not prepare your defense beforehand. I myself will give you a wisdom in speaking that your adversaries will find impossible to refute. I like to prepare, especially for arguments. It usually takes place in the shower and I'm sitting there thinking, well, I know what this person's gonna say and then I'm gonna say this and that'll force them to say this and then I'm gonna say this and I will win. And it never ever goes that way. This doesn't mean, however, don't worry about knowing your stuff. We are to be deeply immersed in our faith in a philosophy of life to know what we stand for and why we stand for it. Who is Christ? Who is Christ to me and who am I to Christ? And what kind of relationship are we in? Because you can't defend a faith or a point or philosophy unless you know it through and through. We are to be a people of prayer, of study, of debate, deeply so. But even so, we trust God to guide us on this challenging journey because what needs to be said can often be a surprise to us. When St. Joan of Arc, on whose feast day I was ordained, was put on trial by the English for defense of France, they put her through a long and horrible drawn out trial. They tried everything they could, threw everything at her to try to trick her into saying something, something wrong so that they could pin it on her and thereby punish her. She spoke brilliantly and put her accusers to shame, but they didn't stop. So in Mark Twain's book, he recounts the trial and here's a part of the court scene that Mark Twain wrote about. In the afternoon, the satanic bishop himself took the chair and presided over the closing scenes of the trial. Along toward the finish, this question was asked by one of the judges to Joan of Arc. You have said to my lord the bishop that you would answer him as you would answer before our holy father the pope, and yet there are several questions which you continually refuse to answer. Would you not answer the Pope, who is the vicar of God, more fully? Now, a thunderclap out of a clear sky. 
Jones said, take me to the Pope. I will answer to everything that I ought to. It made the bishop's purple face fairly blanch with consternation. If Joan had only known, if she had only known, she had lodged a mine under the black conspiracy, able to blow the bishop's schemes to the four winds of heaven, and she didn't even know it. She had made that speech by mere instinct, not suspecting what tremendous forces were hidden in it. This was the masterstroke. It was an appeal to Rome. Isn't it interesting that Mark Twain reported that she did not even know the impact of what she had said? She was unconscious of it. It wasn't the brilliant theological words or the faith-filled answers, which were nonetheless necessary to carry the trial forward to this point on this difficult trial. But the final, final master stroke with these rash words thrown out, almost thoughtless comment. Were these the words about which Christ said, don't worry about what you are going to say? She needed all of that other knowledge and that relationship with cross, but the cru de gras was this final statement. I remember once in particular that this happened with me. I was walking with Father Pfeiffer in downtown Cleveland, and people are attracted to Father Pfeiffer. And out of the blue, people will just walk up to him and start having these theological discussions. He must have a sign on his head or something. But we were crossing the street, and there was this other young man, blonde hair, young, kind of buff, and he walks up, and he says, are you two gentlemen priests? Okay. Yes, we are. My name is Father Valenchek. What's your name? And he goes, nope, I don't shake hands with priests. I went, all right, fine. So went across the street. Turns out we were going to the same coffee shop, and the, and the guy couldn't let it go. He had to come over and talk to us. Well, I'll talk to Father Pfeiffer. And they get into this deep theological discussion. He's an atheist, Father Pfeiffer's Christian Catholic, and they're going back and forth about who does the most good for the world. And finally, he made the comment that, you know, it, it's the Christians that cause the most bloodshed in the world. I said, really? You mean like Stalin and Pol Pot and Mussolini and Hitler? And he goes, well, that, that didn't count for some reason. He says, no, we are the ones who are the hope of the future. We're going to bring the, priest, the, the peace to the world. And I said, and which one of us refused to shake hands on the street? And he kind of took a breath. His eyes got really big. And then his shoulders dropped. And he got this big smile on his face. And he said, you got me. It wasn't the deep theological arguments that won him over, although they were absolutely needed to keep the conversation going to this point and to give evidence that our beliefs were coming from somewhere in a coherent way and that we were in relationship with Jesus Christ. But it was this simple comment that I didn't even realize I was going to say that unhinged and blew up everything. Don't worry about what you are going to say. So today we are definitely called to know and practice our faith, to know Christ and to not be afraid, to not be afraid to stand up for truth and our humanity. 
But the victory is not going to be ours. We trust in God who comes to our defense and who will overcome through us.